It's in our hearts. God is good. And that's why we're here worshiping him, right? Because God is so, so very good to us. And, um, and I feel that uh, we need to express that in different ways. One way that you could express it is by smiling. Are you guys okay? Can you smile? One way to express it is by being excited. Are you excited this morning for Jesus? Not for Pastor Silva, for Jesus. I just came from downstairs. Uh, every first Sabbath of the month, we have uh, something called Children's Church, where we have a church downstairs for the children. The worship is specifically geared just for them, and the songs and the sermons are just for them. And uh, they're a little bit more excited than you guys, I have to say. They got a little bit more energy. They're a little bit more excited about Jesus. They respond back to the sermon. You're welcome to do that today as well. Don't hold back. Don't hold back. God is so very good. We want to welcome you to University Seventh-day Adventist Church. And, and today we're continuing our sermon series, Jesus on Prophecy, that we've been doing for two weeks and uh, it's been quite an exciting journey, learning so much from the Word of God. And today we're going to continue with one of the most important topics that we want to finish on on this Saturday. And that is the topic of which church would Jesus join? Which church would Jesus join? And the reason that we want to speak about this topic is because... I imagine if Jesus walked on this earth today, that he would get invitations from every church. What pastor would not want Jesus to come to their church? He would get invitations to preach at every pulpit in every church in this country. And you know what? I believe Jesus would accept as many invitations as he could possibly go to. He would take as many from Monday, uh, from Sunday to Sunday. He would go in all the churches and speak. Jesus would be in the Catholic church. Jesus would be in the Lutheran church. Jesus would be in the Baptist church. He would be speaking to all people everywhere. But that's not the question. Which church would Jesus attend, visit, or speak at? The question is, if Jesus had the choice, which church would he join? Which church would he join? And let me tell you. Every church would say, my church, right? <laughs> the Catholic church would say, he would join my church. And the Lutherans, my church. And the Baptists, my church. Everybody would say, my church. And the Seventh-day Adventists would say, my church. But the question is, why? I mean, what is the basis or the belief that he would join our church or any other church? Do we have a biblical basis for that? Does God have a church on earth today that is solidly founded or grounded on the Bible? You know, there is a genuine hunger for Christianity and the Bible today. We find that uh, all over the world, people are hungering for the Bible. I met just two people this last month who told me that they are leaving the church or their church that they're attending. Not a Seventh-day Adventist church, but other denominations. And as a pastor, I'm always curious when people tell me they're leaving their church, well, what's the reason? Because I'm worried that people will leave our church. So maybe there's some reasons there are things happening at their church that might be happening in our church that I need to watch out for. And I said, is it the pastor? No, the pastor is, is wonderful. We're good friends, and, 
and he's been a blessing in my life. Okay, is it the church members? Are they acting rude, mean, you know, backstabbing? What's going on? No, we have, I have wonderful friends. We get along. We go out. Okay, is it the carpet? Maybe you don't like the color of the carpet. Is it the potluck food? What, what is it? Everything's great, the two people I talked to, except they said, we feel like we're not getting the Bible. We feel like we're not getting fed by the Word of God. And they're seeking to attend a church, seeking to go someplace where there is genuine Bible Christianity. And what does genuine Bible Christianity mean? Well, we find this statement. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. And if it disagrees with the Bible, it's not for me. You know, people are being satisfied temporarily by different things. Materialism has not satisfied. It satisfies for a moment, but it doesn't satisfy forever. When that Amazon box shows up in your front door momentarily, you are satisfied. You're excited when you buy certain cars, houses, clothes, for a moment you're satisfied, but then, well, it just becomes that same old thing. And to get an excitement, to get a fulfillment, you need more and more and more. And like Jesusa said, how much is enough? Well, there's an answer to that. There's not. You're always going to want more because you're trying to fill a hole that cannot be filled with material things. Pleasure has not satisfied either. Have you noticed that every year they're coming out with technology that is geared for your pleasure? Now, back in the days, we used to play video games, and it was this video game where it was uh, very slow, the graphics were bad, and you had to reset it constantly. And the kids were okay for a little bit, but after a while, they get bored. After a while, you get bored with the iPhone 5, so you need an iPhone 6, you need an iPhone 7, iPhone 8, iPhone, we're going to get all the way to iPhone 50, and guess what? You're still not going to be satisfied because we find that the things that give us pleasure give us pleasure temporarily, and they could never satisfy that longing of the soul. I believe that technolo technology has not satisfied. I believe that pleasure has not satisfied. Material things cannot satisfy, but there's still that hunger. There's still that hunger that I believe that can be filled with something we find in the Bible. So God is calling a people on, his, on the earth today, his church. He's looking for a people who are looking to be satisfied, not by the world, but by his word. And if you're here today, it's maybe because that's you. Maybe you have been satisfied with a boyfriend or girlfriend, or with school, or with degree, or with pleasures, or travels. It's not saying those things are necessarily bad, but they just haven't fulfilled that longing of your soul. And you hear this morning saying, maybe it's church, maybe it's God, maybe it's Jesus. And Jesus says that he has his church on earth. Now, does that sound kind of exclusive to you? That sound kind of exclusive? He has his church. Now, all created beings are his, but the Bible tells us that he has his church. Because when it comes to being his church, it's not just a one-way relationship, it's a two-way relationship. See, when I was uh, 
When I met Mia, I could have gone around telling everyone, you see that, that beautiful young lady over there? Well, she's, she's mine. She's taken. Okay? She's, she's with me. And that would have been all fine and okay unless someone asked her, hey, that guy says that he's uh, with you and you're his boyfriend, he's your boyfriend, is that true? And if she would have said no, then it would have been very awkward, right? It would have been that one-way relationship. Yeah, he's mine or she's mine. You see, when we are, all the people of the earth are God's people. He created them. They live because of his power. But to be called his church, it has to be a reciprocal relationship. Both have to say, yes, he is mine and I am his. Or she is mine and I am his. And so we find that God has always had his people. In the days of Noah, he had a special message for humanity, and Noah appealed to men and women to enter the ark for safety. And the majority of the people rejected God's call, but God still had a few faithful people who entered the call, who reciprocated that relationship with him, and they came out of a majority. They were not the majority, they were the minority. They came out of the popular masses of that day and they took a step of faith into the ark and as they entered the ark of safety, those people in the ark were his church. In the Old Testament, we continue this theme of his people. We find that Abraham was called out of the majority. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land which I shall tell you. You see, Abraham was called out of the popular culture of his time and was told to follow him completely. And because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments and my statutes, the Bible tells us, he became his people. Now, it wasn't only Abraham that we find in the Bible. God also chose Moses to lead his people, to be faithful to him and keep his commandments. And so in the Old Testament day of the Israel of God, there was a faithful minority, an obedient group that were his people. This is the way that the Lord spoke to them in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments. How long? Always. So when you're saying, these are my people, they are my people because they are doing something that identifies them as mine. And the Bible tells us, if you're going to be my people and love me, if you love me like I love you, and I'm yours and you're mine, then that's going to be shown by you keeping my commandments. His people are those who love him back and keep his commandments. I am yours and you are mine. And that makes us intertwined. And so, as the Bible continues describing his people, we find that God has always had a chosen people throughout the histories. He's always called a people out of the majority to love him and keep his commandments. So would it be strange then that in our time the same happens? Would it be strange then to say that God also has a chosen people? That God also has a church? It happened even in the time of Jesus. In the day of 
the New Testament, Peter preached powerfully, and 3,000 people were baptized in the day of Pentecost. And as they were baptized and they stepped out of the water, they became God's special people that keep his commandments. Peter, written by Peter, 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special what? His own special people. Now, is this the Old Testament or the New Testament? The New Testament. So who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the Christian New Testament church. So the question is, in the days of Noah, did God have a special people? Yes or no? Yes, yes or no? Yes. yes, he did. In the day of Abraham, did he have a special people? Yes or no? Yes, he did. In the days of Moses, did he have a special people? Yes or no? Yes. yes. And in the days of Peter, did he have a special people? Yes. yes, he did. God's special people, friends, have always been characterizing by loving obedience. They loved him enough to obey him. I'm still trying to teach that lesson to my daughter. Why should she obey me? You know, she questions She's a smart cookie. Have you ever had a kid that's too smart for their age? And they're like really deep thinkers. And they're asking like, well, why should I obey you? You know, that's, well, I'm not sure. What should I say, you know? Uh, because I'm the dad? Because I got a belt? You know, what, what should you say? <laughs> because I could keep you from eating breakfast this morning? And, and the answer is just basic. Honey, you should obey me. Because you're always telling me I love you, Dad. And if you love me, won't you do the things that make me happy? The things that, that, that make me smile? And so if you love me, please obey me. God's people has, have always been characterized by loving obedience. And so God has always had a people. God has always had a people in this world that are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and his special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So when you take a step to follow truth, and you become part of God's commandment-keeping people, you do not deny any truth that you believed in the past. And that's an important point, because many times people feel like they cannot leave the traditions that they grew up because they feel like if they move to a church that is teaching something different, even if they're convicted that that's the truth, they feel that that means they're rejecting all the things that they grew up and all the things that their mother or grandmother taught them as they sat on their lap. And when you follow the truth, friends, it's not a denial of the past. It's an appreciation of the past and the morals and the things you have been taught and then a growth from that foundation to a higher knowledge and understanding of how to make Jesus smile. If you make Jesus smile a little, you can make him smile even more as you follow the truth that you have been learning. And that's what we've been doing with Jesus on prophecy, showing new truth. That if you lovingly obey and follow, will bring you closer to Jesus. While we may appreciate our past, we commit ourselves to following all the truth that God has for us today. And 
for tomorrow. When you find the truth, you look for a church that teaches the truth. And when you found the truth of God's word in the Bible, then you find a church that squares up with the Bible. And I always tell people that. I said, you know, I want you to come to my church and, and meet the wonderful people. I want you to come here and hear the beautiful special music, and I pray that you appreciate and are blessed by the sermons I preach. But the reason I want you to become part of this church is not because only the people or the special music or the preaching or the delicious food or the socialization. I want you to feel that you belong here because you have studied your way into the church, that you have studied the Bible and found that this is the church that teaches what the Bible teaches completely. But how do you define church? Which church would Jesus be a part of? First Timothy tells us, I write so that you may know how, to, how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And here's the pillar. Here's how you could know what a ch the church is. The pillar and ground of what? Truth. So when we are defining church, what do we think? A church is a building like this one that looks different than the rest. A church is a place where people gather and uh, pray or hear a sermon. A church is where there's Bibles. What is a church according to this? The church is the pillar and the ground of, of truth. And so when we're looking for a church, and when Jesus would be looking for a church to join, the first thing that he's looking for is if that church stands on the foundation of the truth, that is found in the Bible. And you say amen, or you should, but maybe you're not excited as a children's church. Amen, a little late, but that's okay. Thank you, I'll take it. I'll take what I can here this morning. But uh, I have had people look at me directly, and it's almost like I think of the story of the rich young ruler when Jesus asked him to give up his riches to the poor and follow him. I've had people look at me, who I've studied with and said, I know this is the truth. I know that this church teaches the truth and it follows the truth, but I just can't leave my church. I have too many friends there or I'm too involved in that church. And it hurts because the church in the eyes of God is not just the building where people say the name Jesus. The church is one that is grounded on truth. And I pray that you attend this church for that very reason. And the reason that truth, like why is truth important? What's the big deal? Because John 17, 17 says, sanctify them, or sanctify means make them holy by your truth. Your word is truth. If you want transformation, and I think that's why people come to church, not just to hear a, uh, an inspirational message or a self-help message. They come here to be changed from the inside out, to become more like Jesus. And that is only done by the truth that is preached directly from the Bible. John chapter 8, verse 32 says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Free from addiction. Free from that tongue that says bad things and treats others wrongly. Bad, free from habits, free from all the things that are chaining you in life from the wrong pleasures, 
free from that bad relationship. It is only in a church that is founded on truth that you will receive that. And so we need to come to the church with an open mind and ask ourselves, is this church or maybe other churches grounded our truth or not? If we approach God's word only desiring, only desiring to prove our position, there we go, we will not discover his will. Our own thoughts will influence what we, what we read. We need to come humbly to the book of the Bible and the book of Revelation. So today, let's talk about the church. And let's talk see if this church follows the criteria and description of the church that God would want to be a part of. In Revelation chapter 12, we find a woman who appears in heaven called the Bride of Jesus Christ. And what does a woman represent in Bible prophecy for all you Bible students out there? Do you remember? It represents a church. In 2 Corinthians, a woman uh, represents a church. We find it, for I, am for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So here, uh, the apostle is saying that he has connected the church which is the chaste version to her husband, Jesus Christ. And so the church has always been symbolized by a woman. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, continuing this imagery, tells us, So that great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. And he was cast out, continuing here, he was cast out to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So let's just follow the scenes of Revelation chapter 12. Scene number one or episode number one, Satan rebels against God in, in heaven. Who wins that battle in heaven, by the way? Christ wins, Satan loses, Satan is cast out. God is victorious and the centuries pass by and then we come to scene number two or episode two in this series. And what? Does the Bible tells us happens in episode 2. And the dragon stood before the woman, which is the church, who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. In heaven, Satan tried to fight and defeat Jesus, and he was defeated and cast out of heaven to earth. Now on earth, in episode 2, Satan now focuses his efforts on destroying Jesus as he came as a man. He is angry, and he stands before the woman, ready to destroy Jesus. And she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. But then the Bible tells us, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. So what happened? As we look back in the Bible, we find the story that the family of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, had to flee to Egypt to preserve the life of Jesus. Just as the Bible predicted that dragon was ready to devour the child as soon as it came out of the woman, and God had to rescue Jesus by having him flee to Egypt until he was old enough to return. And then we find that in the wilderness, also Satan attacked him. 
and try to make him fall into sin and temptation. But on the cross, finally, we see that it seemed as though this dragon truly did destroy or devour this child that became Jesus as he died on the cross. But as he went to the grave, the Bible tells us that the grave could not hold back Jesus, and he came forth victorious from the grave, and that's why Revelation chapter 12 verse 5 says, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Jesus is not on earth. He has defeated Satan twice, and he's now in the throne of heaven. So episode two is that Satan tries to destroy Jesus, and he has failed time after time in heaven and in earth. Christ wins and Satan loses. Now, with Satan unable to do any harm to Jesus, who is he looking around and seeing? He's seeing the woman is still here. The church is still here. And so Satan cannot touch Jesus because he's in heaven, and he turns his wrath on the woman or the Christian church. And we see that all but one of the disciples died a martyr's death. Church and state were united in the days of Constantine. And as the church and state united, we find that Satan attacked the church. He persecuted true believers. And we find in Revelation 12, verse 6, that the woman, the church, because of this persecution, had to hide. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by, by God. When Satan attempted to destroy Bible-believing Christians in the Dark Ages, women and men and children who were lovingly obeying the Bible and its commandments had to flee into the mountains, into the deserts. They had to flee, and the Bible says that the church, the true church, the one who kept his commandments, because there was churches all across Europe that said that they were church, the church of God, but God recognizes only as his church those who love him back by keeping the commandments. And the Bible says that they fled and they were fed for 1,260 days. Now remember, in Bible prophecy, that comes out to one day as one literal year. So we find that the church in the wilderness was in the wilderness for 1,260 years to avoid the persecution and death during the Dark Ages. We find that the persecuting power began in A.D. 538, and so 1,260 years brings us to the year 1798. And if something is in hiding, if God's church is in hiding, for 1,260 years, that means that God's church needs to come out of hiding after the 1,260 years after 1798. And what happened during that time? Well, we find that the reformers were still persecuted for their faith. We find that uh, they had to stand up and be faithful and that Satan tried to destroy the church and it had to go into hiding, but we find that Christ always wins because in the year 1798, just like the Bible predicted, the persecuting power of the Catholic Church in Europe was taken away when Napoleon decided that there was only one power 
one authority that stood in the way of European domination. And so when a Frenchman was killed in the Vatican, he sent his general Berthier to capture the Pope and take him into captivity. And so exactly in the year 1798, that's when the persecuting power ended. And once the persecuting power ended, then the church that went into the hiding could now emerge and come out of hiding. And so God's chosen people, just like in the days of Noah, Abraham, and Moses, God has always had a commandment-keeping people. But could those commandment-keeping people have been visible during the Dark Ages? No, because they would have been killed for their beliefs. And God's people would have been destroyed from the face of this earth if they would have shown themselves during the Dark Ages. In Spain, where my former family is from, it's an incredible thing that you can go there and you could visit these beautiful cathedrals, these beautiful Catholic churches, and you go in there and they have gold and they have diamonds worth millions and millions. But then you could also pay a little bit of extra money to have them take you to the basement of these churches. And in the basements of these churches, you will find bones of children, of women, of men, and you will find tortured devices that only Satan could inspire men to invent. And so, if you did not worship upstairs, you were taken downstairs. God's commandment-keeping people could have not survived during that time, so God hid them. He hid them, and the book of Revelation describes how after the Catholic Church lost its persecuting power, then could emerge God's commandment-keeping church. And so we find the identifying characteristics of this church in the book of Revelation. The dragon was enraged with a woman and went to make war with her and the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Friends, what is the first characteristic of the church that God's going to be looking for? They keep his commandments. They keep not eight commandments. They don't keep nine commandments, but they keep all, all ten commandments. And they keep them faithfully. They keep them in the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. But what's the second characteristic that we find there? We find that it says that it will also have the testimony of Jesus. So let us look at those two characteristics. What does it mean to keep God's law? Well, one of the most denied and forgotten ones is the reason we're gathered here in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. You know, in one of our first nights of the meetings, someone came up to me after and wanted to insist and convince me that the Ten Commandments had been done away with. That they are no longer relevant for us. And I just cannot understand how thou shalt not murder is not to be kept anymore. And how you shall not commit adultery could not be kept anymore. Or thou shalt not have any other God. Now, people don't argue about those, though, do they? Those are all right and fine. But the reason they talk about doing away with the commandments is not commandment 1 through 3, or not commandment 5 to 10, it's commandment number 4. Remember the Sabbath day. Hebrews chapter uh, 10 verse 16 tells us, I will put my laws into their hearts and their minds, and I will write them. 
How should we keep the commandments? In a loving response to what God has done for us. So Revelation 12 tells us that God's church will keep the commandments. The second one is that they will have the testimony of Jesus Christ. What is the testimony of Jesus Christ? Well, I don't have to define it. The Bible could define it by itself. It says in Revelation 19.10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of what? Of prophecy. So in God's true church, it will not only be a commandment-keeping church, but it will also be a church that has the spirit of prophecy. That means that it will not only teach prophecy, but it will have a prophet among them. Now, for some of you single people, how many people are not married here in a congregation and maybe would like to be married sometime in the future or maybe not? Would you raise your hand? I'm trying to help you here. Raise your hand. Come on. Raise them high. You know, when, when you're single, people are always telling you what to look for, right, in a husband or a wife or a future boyfriend or, or a future girlfriend. They says, well, do you need... Well, I know what the parents would say, my parents, make sure that they are, you know, a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Make sure that they know how to cook, because I know that you like your Hispanic food. Uh, make sure that they have an educate. You know, my mom gave me all these lists, and Mia completed them 100%. No, just kidding. <laughs> she did like 99, and then she learned how to cook, because my mom sh showed her, and then it was 100 after that. And so when you're looking for your future husband, she's not back there, don't worry, you don't have to look. When you're looking for your future husband and future wife, everyone has characteristics, right? I remember that I was speaking to a, a Korean couple and they were telling me that their son uh, was dating all these girls. He was, you know, eligible bachelor and he was doing well and he was dating these girls in the Adventist college, but he would come on weekends and weekdays, three-hour drive home to eat his mom's Korean food. And he was dating people that were not Korean, who didn't cook like mother. And finally he came to the realization that one of his non-negotiable characteristics is that they're able to cook like my mother. And he went and found a wife in South Korea. And so we all have these characteristics. But have you ever thought, when someone's gonna become part of the church, what are the characteristics that they look for in the church? Well, the pastor better be pretty engaging and interesting. I don't want to fall asleep. I don't want to invite my friends and they fall asleep when he's preaching. And the church members, well, they got to be smiling at least 90% of the time when they're in church. And then they also need to have a wonderful children's program. They need to have Pathfinder. They need to have adventures. They need to have good music. And I'm not saying those things are bad and we want those things in our church, right? But those are extras, the main characteristics of which we should be looking for when we're talking about God's true church is what? They will keep the commandments of God and they will have the testimony of Jesus Christ is that they will have a prophet. And how many churches did that eliminate? Eliminates almost all of them because how many have a prophet and keep the Ten Commandments as they're written in Exodus chapter 20? You are not in the wrong place, is what I'm saying. You, I'm not sure if on purpose or by accident, but you have come to a church that meets these characteristics. 
It says in 1 Corinthians about the gift of prophecy, that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we find that Ellen White is the prophet that has been put to the test of a prophet and has passed the biblical test in our church. And we believe that she has prophesied messages of encouragement and hope for God's last day people. If you've never heard of Ellen White, well, today is the first day you met, heard that name. We were willing to do studies with you to further explain who Ellen White is. She didn't found our church. She didn't form any of our doctrines, but just like the prophets of old, she encouraged and clarified God's people in the time that we're living in. In fact, she saw a vision one day in California. Uh, she saw a vision that there would be a great medical institution in California that would send medical missionaries to all over the world to not only heal people, but to do the ministry of Jesus, healing, preaching, and teaching. And when she was traveling by train in Southern California, she saw this little hill with a hotel over it. It was called Loma Linda, which in Spanish means beautiful hill. And she said, that's the place I saw in my dream. The Lord showed me that this is the location where this great medical institution will be that will send missionaries to the whole world. Well, the church leaders at that time said, I'm sorry, but we can't afford to buy that. It's too expensive. We're already in debt. But she insisted that that's the place that the Lord showed her. And so she put down her own money. She got in debt because she felt that they could not pass upon the land that the Lord had impressed upon her. A couple years later, that hotel became a nursing school, then became a medical school. And little by little, it started growing and growing until today, it's a multi-billion dollar research hospital with medical school, dental school, and all sorts of schools next to it where they did some of the first heart transplants in the country, where they have forms of treatment for cancer, proton machines that are only found in four or five other places in the whole world. And this young man, not knowing that he would fulfill prophecy, enrolled to the nursing school and studied how to heal people and then decided to take a call and go be a missionary to Guam, fulfilling the words that she said, that in this institution, it would become a great medical institution, sending missionaries, medical missionaries, nurses, doctors, to preach the gospel to the whole world. Friends, there's so many things that could be said about the direction that God has given through his prophets. Do not, do not deny his prophets. And so, what are one of the characteristics? Keep the commandments of God, and that they would also have the gift of prophecy. But it would also be a church that is spirit-filled, that impacts the whole world. God's true church cannot be a mega church that only affects the city of Lansing, or the city of New York, or the city of the Los Angeles, because the God's true church in Revelation 14 has been giving a worldwide message. And so it needs to be a commandment-keeping church. It needs to be a church that has the spirit of prophecy, and it needs to be a church that goes all over the world. Go therefore and make disciples of how many nations? 
all nations. And I think that we're a beautiful representation of that here. Look around. We are representative of so many nations because this church has fulfilled that characteristic that it has gone to all the world and affected those of different nations. And so we're running out of time this morning. And so what I want to encourage you, friends, is that when we are talking about God's true church, if Jesus were walking on earth today, he would go everywhere, and he would talk to anyone. But I feel that when he's talking about his people, when he's talking about his church, I think he's thinking of his time when Noah was in the ark, and he was there with Noah. I, I think that he was talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when he was there with them in the fire. I think he was thinking about Abraham when he was there with him in the middle of nowhere, when he had gone away from all his family in the cities he knew, and he was looking up at the stars, God was with him there. He was thinking of the New Testament church. He was thinking of the Christians that were not willing to submit to the popular church of Europe, but were willing to die at the stake for their beliefs. I think he was thinking of them when he said, that's my people, that's my church. And today, he's still looking for his people. He's still looking for his church, and he's laid it out in the Bible clearly who that people are. They keep the Ten Commandments. They have a prophet among them, and they are a worldwide church. Friends, I believe that's the Seventh-day Adventist church. I believe the Seventh-day Adventist church has been foretold in Bible prophecy. And God is calling wonderful Christians and believers of all other churches to come and be part of this last day movement. And so you are here this morning, and maybe you've been coming to this church because you enjoy the messages from me, Pastor Jermaine, and our elders. Maybe you've been coming to this church because your parents have brought you to this church since you were little. Or maybe you've been coming to this church because a husband, wife, friend has invited you here and you felt comfortable here, you like it here, you think it's an okay church and you don't mind attending here long term. But friends, what we are encouraging you today through this message is not only to attend for those reasons, not only be part of this church for those reasons, but for a greater reason that this is God's last day church on earth. And he's inviting you not only to attend, but to be part, a member, a baptized member of the Seventh-day Adventist church. A church that Jesus recognizes as his own because he has put the characteristics in the book of Revelation so they all could see this is where Jesus would come and say, I feel at home because you lovingly obey me and keep my commandments. So I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes because maybe there's someone here this morning who has felt that this is a place that they could draw nearer to God, but now God is calling them to make a commitment to be part of a church, not only by attending, by saying, I want to be baptized into the church that is described in the book of Revelation, the church I believe is the Seventh-day Adventist church. 
And so this morning, if you have not been baptized into his church, and you have been convicted by the messages previously and this day, that this is God's church, and he's inviting you to be part of that church, I want to invite you to raise your hand and say, Pastor, one day in the future, I want to be baptized. I want to become part of this church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, because I believe that it follows the Bible, and the Bible only, and it's described as His church in Bible prophecy. If that's your desire this morning, friends, if that's you, would you raise your hand to Jesus and say, yes, I want to be part of that movement. I want to be part of that movement. Now is your time. Now is your opportunity. Praise God. I see a hand. Amen. Would you raise your hands higher? If that's you, if you have not been baptized, you've been coming since you were little. Maybe others have been encouraging you to come as a child, and now you're old enough to make your own choice. What church do I want to belong to? And you see that God has described this as his church. Would you raise your hand if that's your desire? If you've been attending and you feel that it's time to make a choice, would you raise your hand with those who have already raised their hand? Two wonderful decisions that I see. Three wonderful decisions that I see. Would you raise your hand with them? God is inviting you to be part of his church this morning. Amen and amen. Is there one more? We don't want to close this service without giving you the opportunity to commit yourself to the Bible truth that God has a people, God has a church, and invite you to be baptized. There's three. Is there one more, friend? One more this morning who wants to say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be part of his church. I have not been baptized, but today's the day I make that choice in the future. Amen and amen. And how many who have already given their life to Jesus and have been baptized as well as our heads are bowed and eyes closed want to make that recommitment in their heart this morning and raise their hand and say, thank you, Jesus, for showing me the truth and inviting me to be part of your church. Amen and amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask a blessing over everyone that's here. These are people who are seeking and hungering for truth. And I pray that we will be a, a Bible community, a faith community, a church that will always honor you by teaching the Word, the Bible, so that your people are sanctified. I pray for those who have raised their hands, who want to join your church through baptism. I pray for those who are struggling in that valley of decision. And I thank you for those who have already made that decision and recommitted it today. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all say, Amen. I invite you to stand with me for our closing song, number 216, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. Number 216. 